All right. So um, this morning's uh, uh, class is on the existence and the being of God. So the fact that God's there and and not not so much what God's like. That'll be in days ahead. But what is God? So just that that idea. I think you'll see what that means as we as we go through here. Our first three lessons in foundations, we've we've begun with with the Bible. Uh, which is the right place to, to, to go because the scriptures teach us about, um, about God. But it's very interesting that the first thing that the Bible tells us is about God himself. So on your handout there, you've got, you've got a verse, um, which by the way, I'm going to say as we're going through here, hey, if you want to turn to this place, and for somebody who turns there, I'm going to ask you to maybe read. So feel free to, to jump around and follow along. I'll throw out places um, where we'll need to be reading from. But you'll notice there, Genesis 1-1. Somebody read that for us out loud. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the Yeah. This is where the Bible begins. The, the Bible begins with a declaration that there is a God and He made everything. He made the heavens and the earth. Now, this... This may seem obvious to, to many of us, but it's not something that, that ought be taken for granted. Because if we were to just go down on the streets and ask somebody, um, what's, what's the meaning and the purpose of life? How do we know what that is? Where would, what would most people do to give a response? Where would they look to? Yeah, they'd, they'd look to themselves. They wouldn't look, look to the heavens and say, well, first of all, there's a God. And He made everything, and that informs who I am, who you are, and why we're here. Most people don't have that worldview. So even if they're not actual atheists, many people, unfortunately, live as practical atheists, as if there were no God. So this study of the very existence of God, what it's intended to do is to alert us and awake us, awaken us to something that is foundational uh, for what it means to even be alive, to know that there's a God who made everything, including, including us. So the big idea, or the main idea here for our lesson this morning is that because God exists and can be known, we ought to spend our lives pursuing Him. Because God exists and can be known, we ought to spend our lives pursuing Him. Okay? Now, um, we're going to begin this six weeks on, on studying God by talking first about the question, is there really a God? Is, is there really a God? Exploring the existence of God. Okay? So, Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, who's author of, um, of a book on Bible doctrine that we're using, is one of the primary sources for this, this class. He says this, he says, The Bible does not argue about the existence of God, it declares it. The Bible does not give us any proofs of the existence of God, it assumes it. Now, faith, the very faith that there's a God at all is... You know, for some people, that's not very difficult, but for others, it's, it's a real stumbling block. How many of you um, either, yeah, either would say that you're an, an atheist or uh, came from an atheist background? So before you were a Christian, you would say, I didn't believe there was a God at all. How many of you came from that background? Anybody? One. One honest person. That's very kind. No. Um, 
depending on what circles you're in, there would be a lot more hands in the room. So I remember when I was in philosophy class at Virginia Tech, I mean, everybody's like, of course there's no God. Um, and that was, that, was a, that was a posture. And it's, it's, a, it's a worldview that certainly needs to be considered whenever we begin just with this question about, is there a God at all? Okay, so um, now, one of the things I think that we need to know, just as we begin, you might want to turn to Genesis for this, early chapters of Genesis 2 and 3, is that belief in the existence of God, right now, it needs to be taken by faith. None of us in here right now can prove that God exists. You just can't do that. You, you have to take it by faith. Now, there are proofs, and we'll talk about those in a, in a moment. There's evidence that we think that points toward this overwhelmingly clear reality. But, but you can, I say, show me God. You, you, can't, you can't do that, right? So there's an element by which, uh, of faith that requ- is required um, to declare his existence. But it hasn't always been that way. People didn't always need to take by faith the existence of God. So if you're there in Genesis, somebody read uh, chapter 2, verse 7 for us. And then somebody else is going to do verses 15, and 15 through 17. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. God took dirt and breathed into it and it became alive, it became a human. And face to face. He didn't just speak it, but he breathed it into him. Some theologians call this the kiss of life, right? Now 2.15 and through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of, of the tree of, of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, eat of it, you shall surely die. So God spoke a command to Adam, saying, This is my world, and here's my rules. He didn't have to take that by faith. He heard God. He saw God. Somebody read 3.8 for us. This is after the fall, but we see, we see that God was not just speaking down from the clouds, as it were. Imagine that. Like your quiet time in the morning used to be, let's get up and take a walk with Jesus. Let, let's, let's get up and walk. You see Him. Before the fall, and certainly here right directly after the fall, before they're kicked out of Eden, people did not have to take the existence of God by faith. It was a seen reality. It was, he was there, and we saw Him. Okay? So, it's just not the case anymore, is it, though? Now we must take by faith that there is a God and that He, he exists. Now, there is a faith that, that human beings can have that is not salvific in nature. So, unbelieving people can have faith that there is a God. That doesn't save them, just believing that there is a God. And James says that the devil believes that there's a God. The demons do. So that, there's, there's, a, there's a faith that God exists that's not salvific in nature. But in order to have salvation, it begins with, the real, with faith that there is a God who exists. Hear this from uh, Hebrews 11.6. 
Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, please God. For who would ever draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So, a, a faith that pleases God begins with He's there. And He rewards those who seek Him, which will be the part of the sermon today and next week. Jesus said the same thing to Thomas, you'll remember. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's going to be the normal way to believe. Most of us are not going to be sticking our hand into the side of the Lord. But rather, we're going to have eyes that are turned to, to see Him. Okay? Now, this, this idea of faith round, runs just countercultural to our world that says that seeing is believing. Right? Show me. Prove it to me. Well, our, our ability to help people believe in God's existence is fully dependent upon His, His grace and His power to move. We can give proofs for God's existence, and those proofs, which I pray that this will happen, they both strengthen and support our faith, but, it, but proofs of His existence do not give faith. So you do... You being the best apologist in the world, being able to answer every question about the existence of God is not ever going to save anybody. What saves somebody is that God, in His mercy, intervenes and takes a dead stony heart out and gives a beating heart with eyes to behold spiritual things. Okay? So that's what we pray for. But these proofs, I think, do have some real worth and value. I know, and I'm not... I, Apologetics is, is good. There's some people who just love it and that's like their thing. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's good. The existence of God was just never a struggle for me. So it's not hugely like a, a big thing that I just study tons about. But putting this together, I was like, oh, this is really good. So if you don't like it, that's fine. I was really encouraged by all of this um, that we're about to walk through here. Um, just because it makes you think about the fact that everywhere you look, God has just put neon signs everywhere saying, this is my world. My world. I made it. Very much like uh, Adam and Eve in the garden when he says, all the trees are for you. Enjoy them. Well, I think he's, he's laid out a banquet for us of, of reasons. So let's move down to, um, to letter A here. Does God exist? Before that, anybody have any pressing question that you think this would be really helpful for everybody in the room? Yes, ma'am. Well, I get a little nervous when we talk about just uh, that it's just faith that requires us to believe in God because there has to be a distinction between um, the leap of faith, which understands, sees things spiritually, and sort of fairy tale belief. Like, mm -hmm. if, I, if I believe this hard enough, it's true, and there's some, there's some honor or there's some achievement in believing something that isn't necessarily true. You can see. Exactly. Yep. Exactly true. So the object of your faith has to be real. Yes. And that, that, is, that is what these proofs are intended to do, is to put in front and center, God is real, and He ought be, be trusted in. He ought be believed upon. So as I walk through these, see if that becomes any more clear. Yeah, I was talking to somebody recently who said, yeah, I don't, I don't need your imaginary friend. 
And um, <laughs> I, I, under, I understand what, what they mean. Mm, you know, and I, would, I would disagree, but um, good, good point. All right, let's look here then at the question, A, does God exist? So atheism is the di disbelief that there is a God. Um, atheism, ah, theos, so theos means God, ah, non, and negates it, and there's no God. It's the belief that there is no God. And though, statistically, it's a pretty small chunk of people who actually hold this view, uh, it is certainly commonly discussed in philosophical and theological arenas, and we've got to, we've got to address it. Okay? So, um, what we're going to do is we're going to lay out here, one, two, three, four, five, I'm terrible counting Roman numerals, so five, um, five uh, proofs here uh, for, for the existence of God. So, proof number one, creation has, has a, a cause. Uh, this is traditionally called the cosmological argument. So, the world, or in Greek, the cosmos, this is where cosmological comes from, the world exists and must have a cause. So, I mean, look around. There's something there. And we believe that God is the best explanation for what that cause could be. So, this formal argument dates all the way back to Plato, who was you know, between three and 400 B.C., but it's certainly been held since, since the creation of man. That when you look at stuff, it came from somewhere. Like, it just, it's, stuff doesn't just poof out of nowhere. It, it's there. We see it. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and earth are there. We see them. Where did they come from? Well, it has a cause. Psalm 102.25 says this, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. That means is when you look at the stars, they came from somewhere. They had to have had a cause. Or Hebrews 3.4, Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So if you're going to... If you look at this, this building that we're in right now, it has not always been here. Lord willing, it will not always be here. Um, I don't mean that in a, like, we hate our building kind of way, but it's, it's tight and old and falling apart, but that's okay. Um, but this building has not always been, it came from somewhere. It has to have some sort of, of cause. And we look at creation and we say, there has to be some sort of cause behind this. That's the most simple, straightforward thing. Uh, it's the, the cosmological argument. This is the idea that if you're walking down a beach and you see a watch laying there, you don't assume that time and chance and wind and rain and waves put that watch together. Nobody thinks like that. Nobody thinks like that. We know that things have a cause. God is that cause. The second proof here, the creation has... A designer. Creation has a designer. This is the teleological argument. Okay. So in the same way that we would say, as a, the example I just used, of course, a watch found on the beach could not possibly have been assembled by time and chance, we must affirm that the world has purpose, telos. This is where teleological, the Greek word for, for purpose is telos, teleological argument. That there is purpose and there is intelligent design behind this. This is why the, the idea of intelligent design has just taken off. As science increases, 
whether you look through a telescope or you look through a microscope, it is evident that there is order in creation. You just, you, you can't, you really have to try to miss it. And I don't mean that, but like it, the proof is everywhere that there is design in the way that our, our bodies work, all the way down from, from strands of DNA to the Milky Way. I mean, like God, there's, there's order behind it in the way things happen. I mean, you have rain that falls and makes grass grow that gives all oxygen that we breathe in. And then there's, I mean, just all of it fits together. It's incredible. There's, there's got to be design behind it. The scripture would testify to this same thing. If you want to turn to Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read a couple of verses before we get to that, but Romans 1 maybe will be helpful here. Listen to this from Psalm 19 while you're turning there. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day it pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. That means when you look at the way... That in our solar system, I mean, everything just works together. It's incredible. There's a designer there. And it's like the creation's yelling, God did this. God did this. Your moon, like that's what gravity, like the whole thing, like he did that. He did that. Acts uh, 14, before we get to Romans 1. uh, We're going to skip Acts 14. You can read it later. We'll do the Romans 1 one. Verses 18 through 21. Somebody read for us Romans 1, 18 through 21. Oh, hold on. I'm sorry. I have to read this from Acts 14. This is really good. So he's, he's, talking, to these, he's talking to these people, and he talks about how the fact that... Um, I'll just read the whole thing. Men, why are you doing these things? They want to sacrifice to Paul and say he's a God. We also are, of, are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, idols, to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet, he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. He said, God has left evidence in rain and seasons and fruit and food on your table. Like it doesn't come from nowhere. It's evidence God's given it. Romans 1, 18 through 21. So why doesn't everybody get it? Well, here we go. Suppress the truth. Keep going. It's everywhere. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Things that have been made are evidence. Exhibit A through Z infinity. Keep going. So they are without excuse. Without excuse. Keep going. Darken. God says to deny the fact that there 
is a cause, there's a creator and a designer, is to suppress all the evidence. It's to suppress, it's to push it away. Because it screams out all around you, God is real. He's here. He's true. God exists. So that's the creation has a cause argument. Creation has a designer argument. Now the thirdly. Now thirdly. And we're going to work through all these and then I'll, 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 I'll pause to see how we're doing with processing it. People reflect the image of an intelligent designer. People reflect the image of an intelligent desire, designer. Um, anthropological argument. Humans, anthropos is the word Greek, that's where you get anthropological argument. Humans are intelligent, volitional, meaning we have a will, we have emotions with innate capacity to rule, to communicate, to have relationships, to be creative. Like, the, we're, humans are like exhibit A, that there is somebody really smart and amazing who made them. It's like God has just made them, y'all are different, I love your dog, but you're different than your dog. Like, I don't need to walk through the stuff your dog does. Like, y'all don't do that, you know what I'm saying? Like, you're different than the dog. God bless the dog, I have a dog. But they're different. You're different than a cow. Different than a snake, different than a snail, different than a slug, different than a fish. Yeah, different than, thank you. It's even close. So, different than monkeys, okay? Now, monkeys can do some tricks, and they're pretty cool, and they're fun to watch on YouTube, but they're not humans. They're just different. God says, I have made man in my own image. I've made him this way. Listen to this. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish and over the sea and the birds and the heavens and the livestock, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, humanity, male and female, he created them. He makes Adam, he makes Eve in his image. So that when you look at one another, what it's supposed to make you do is to say, there's something. There's somebody out there that made you and that I see in you a reflection of him. Now, it's tainted by the fall, but that's the intent. There would be these little statues. I don't know if you noticed or not, but back in the day in uh, near, ancient Near Eastern culture, what kings would do is on, the, on, their, on their border of their territory, they would put a big statue of themselves so that whenever you're about to cross the border, you would know whose land you're about to step into. There's this image that's there. And it's like God has put these images everywhere to say, look at one another and see there's something about you that's amazing. Fallen as you are, it is still crystal clear. Humans are amazing. People make stuff. Like, you're amazing stuff. I have a phone. Like, I can, I can, do, I can do all kinds of crazy stuff. We, come, we are designing everything. Creatures that reflect the very nature and the existence. God is is there. Listen to this from Psalm 8. David loses his mind in a good way and worshipfully. He says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? 
You have made him a little while lower than the heavenly beings, the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. He says, you're the God who made the stars, yet you made us. He's humbled by this, and he says, we're crowned with glory and honor. There is a dignity to human life from the moment of conception to the moment of death that just marks us as different. Which Satan says, well, we're going to start chopping at both ends. We're going we're to get rid of life in the womb. And we're going to get rid of those people who don't produce for society anymore. Because it's really interesting. Whether, whether you see it in an abortion, uh, in racism, in um, you know, slavery, sex trafficking, uh, you know, uh, genocide, genocide the elderly... Satan hates the image. He hates image bearers because he hates the one that it points to. That's why he loves war and murder and rape and slander. Anything to deface the name of the one who made you. I think you're exactly right. Satan hates for you to look at somebody else and think of them as a human. So this is one of the, the things that social media and just internet interactions trains us to do. It dehumanizes somebody. Um, have I shared in here about feedback I've gotten from people I wrote about on the internet? Have I told you about that? All right, real quick. So every once in a while, there'll be something public that happens. And sometimes I'll write a public, like an open letter to somebody. There was, there was a couple instances where some ladies did some, some public abortion things that I wrote responses to them. And both of those ladies wrote me back. And they said the reason they decided to respond to me was because I was, and this is not to, this is just a, as an illustration. This, they felt like I spoke to them like a human. And that I was, I was one of the only Christians who wasn't yelling at them and cussing at them and telling them they were just going to hell. And one of those people said that they have a Christian friend who's been witnessing to them for years and how brokenhearted they were over all of the internet Christians who were just bashing to her and the bad taste that it put in her mouth about Christians. See, Satan, whatever his trick may be, he wants us to dehumanize one another. So whatever you think about whatever candidate may be out there, like, it's a person made in God's image. No matter how much you disagree with policies, they are not the enemy. They're deceived by the enemy. You gotta remember, that creates compassion toward opponents in a way that, that, is, that is loving and God-glorifying. It helps when you drive through neighborhoods that aren't your neighborhood to look and to say, rather than thinking, well, if these people just get it together, or if these people weren't so snooty up on Mansion Drive. You know, what, wherever you, you look, it's easy to, to tear down when there's a distance between you and people. That's why we pray that at this church, we will be a church that's truly diverse with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, every shade of skin color, every grade of economic background and situation, every kind of political. I've loved hearing some of people's different political takes in here. People are all over the board. And you know what? In Christ, 
The gospel does what nothing the world can do. It brings unity. And this is a huge aside that's got me off of this. But it's, it's good, okay? So, so yes, people reflect the image of God. There's something there that's unique and valuable. Number four, conscience reflects the moral creator. If you're still in Romans, somebody read for me verses uh, 14 through 16. Chapter 2, 14 through 16, Romans. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. This is people who have never heard the Ten Commandments. Keep going. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Written on their hearts. Keep going. While their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. All people acknowledge that there is some sort of moral code. Even the most, you know, um, God-rejecting worldview <laughs> is going to be able to find something that they say, well, that's wrong. And the reason is because there's fingerprints of a moral God. And when I say God's moral, Kelton will get to this more. I don't mean that God has a book that he pulls down and says, well, how should I act as God? No, he is truth. He is righteousness. He is goodness. He is love. He is all those justice, mercy. He is that, and he defines it for us. And that is seen in us, right? So when somebody rear-ends your car and then takes off, you think, that's not right. Everybody thinks that, right? And the reason the person fled is because they know justice is coming. They live in a world you can't escape it. It's there. The moral argument is there. And then people have an eternal sense. This is fifthly. So, atheism is not the natural disposition of man's heart. Inherently, people know that there is someone or something outside them that made them. Somebody go to Acts 17 for us. Um, now, we believe that man's understanding of God is corrupted by sin, but he is naturally inclined as a whole, humanity as a whole, to believe that God exists. I'm not saying there some, aren't some people who are born atheists and they're like, I've just always been an atheist. I understand. I would say that you're by far in human history the exception. doesn't mean that you're, I mean, we're, we're still all made in the image of God. Happy to talk with you about that. But what I am saying is that most people throughout history have believed that there's some sort of God there. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, he is, God has made everything beautiful in his time. He has put eternity into man's heart. There's something in him that makes him long and look for answers. Okay? Uh, that Acts 17 passage. You know what? We don't have time to read it. But since you're over there, you can mark it and come back to it later. What Paul is doing there is he's at the Areopagus, this place where they're, um, and he's, he's, he's talking with everybody, and he points out, you have an altar to an unknown God. He says, I'll tell you who he is. See, that's what the gospel does. The gospel comes in and says, all those longings you're looking for, well, there's an answer, and his name is Jesus. And he explains to them what they were looking for in, in, in darkness, Okay. Now, the reality of God's existence is not seen only as inexcusable, as we saw in Romans uh, 1.20, but also foolish. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. 
Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 10 verse 4 says, In the pride of his face the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. Now, w- from these verses that we've seen so far, what is at the heart of denying God's existence? What is, what is how about this? Let's say, what would, what would God say is at the heart of people de- denying his existence? And what do you think one of the main reasons people would give for denying his existence? Let's start with the first. What, what, would, what does God say the reason people deny my existence might be what? Self. That's, give, me, give me more. Self what? Self-love. Okay, got that. Pride, you said. Pride. Kelton, what? Sin. Evil hearts. Self-righteousness. So, so sin, evil hearts hangs over all of these things, right? What was John three seventeen? Somebody said it. That, it's that, um, darkness hates the light, yeah. right? So if there's no God, nobody can tell me what to do. God says whether you want to acknowledge it or not, that's the issue. You don't want a Lord over you. You want to be Lord. You have followed the snare of the devil. You have fallen his trick, which is to say, I don't want to submit to him. I want to have my own world. I want to rule things as I want to. God says at the heart of it, it's that. Now, you may, or whoever is, has this, this position, they may have reasons. I would suggest all of them, that's a stretch. Most of them fall under kind of one big umbrella. What do you think it is? God hasn't proven himself to be on my own terms. Yep. So that's, that is certainly true. God has not shown himself to me. He has not presented himself before me as I deserve, as I would expect. Yes. But I think there's something even that, that kind of informs that. Why unbelief? What are you going to point to? Somebody who says, I don't believe in God. Ty? Evil. The problem of evil. Pardon? If there's a God like you're talking about, who's strong enough to make the world and good enough to give his son, then why cancer? And why rape? And why murder? and why racism, and why they lynch my grandpa, and why, and you can just go down the list of all of the atrocities. That is, is, I think, the overarching reason that people would say that there is no God. God hasn't dealt with me and our world as I want Him to. Now, pause. There are horrific evils that have happened in this world. In this room, there are horrific evils that have happened to some of you. Some of us have committed horrific evils in this room. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus comes into the dark world of evil and he gives hope. He gives light to the darkness that darkness cannot comprehend but cannot extinguish either. 
So there's hope no matter where you've been or what you've done. And there is hope that because Jesus rose from the dead, that all of this one day will be remedied. One of the things I always encourage people to, to consider is that if God can use the greatest evil in all of history, which is the creatures torturing to death their creator and then stuffing them in a grave, if, if God can use the greatest evil that's ever happened in history for the greatest good in history, that, that sinners would be forgiven and reconciled to God, if God can do that with the greatest evil in history, I assure you that whatever pain you have faced, that there is a God who is sovereign over that and is in complete control. He never blinks an eye. He, his hand is always steady and faithful to work out a purpose that I, I suspect most of us will never be able to understand in this life. But that He is there and that He is not out to just torture us. But He's a good God. And we know He's good because He gave His Son. And His Son joyfully and willfully came. It was not cosmic child abuse. He came to rescue people like us. And if God can do that, He can work in whatever evil you can imagine. So, so know that. Okay? So one of the things I always do whenever I'm having a discussion with somebody, always do. One of the things I like to do when I'm having an evangelistic conversation or I'm, or I'm playing with somebody or wherever is I like to ask him the question, okay, if you could ask God any question, what would it be? Now, not the lottery, not, it'd be like a real question. Like if you got one shot at, at, at God, let's say there was a God, if you got one shot, what would it be? I find so often that question unearthed so much. I've had, I've had lots of people just get, just blank stare and say, why'd he let my dad do whatever? Or why'd he let this happen? And I think it oftentimes exposes that, that brokenness that our world lives in. One of the other things I might uh, encourage you just to discuss among yourselves later on is, is uh, reflecting on Hebrews 11.6 and just how has your awareness as a Christian of God's existence, how has that grown over time? So the, the longer I'm on this earth, the more certain I am that, that God is there. And that, that does something to me. I would encourage you guys to have conversations about that kind of thing over lunch. You know, hey, we talked about, we talked about the fact that God exists today. What's that been like for you believing that? How, is, how has that changed your life as you've grown as a Christian? It'd be a good, good question to consider. All right, so does God exist? By far the longest point of this morning. Can God be known is question number two. Can God be known? So agnosticism... Gnosis is knowledge in Greek, ah, gnosis, without knowledge, argues that God's existence cannot be proven or unproven. So it is impossible to know whether or not God exists. Now, this worldview is much broadly held today, along with those who would say it just doesn't matter. Okay, so we'll kind of throw that in, in, in as well. Um, Others would hold to, to deism, which is the idea that, yes, there's a creator, but he just kind of, like a watchmaker, wound up the watch and just let it just do its thing. And he's, he's distant and, and unconcerned and uninvolved. We would say that the scriptures would say that, that that's not true. We would say that God can be known um, and that he is making himself known. John's covered a lot of this um, in the first three sessions, so if you weren't here for that, 
uh, notes and the recordings are available. But I just want to point out two, two quick things here. The first is that God, when we think about can God be known, we have to acknowledge that God is incomprehensible. And what we, what we mean by that is that He cannot be fully known. We have limited minds and, you know, Isaiah 55 says it this way, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So there is one sense in which God is incomprehensible. If anybody ever thinks, yo, I got this God thing figured out. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> He's not, comp- you can't fully comprehend Him. And actually, for all of eternity, what we're going to be doing is learning about Him. We will be pressing into the endless depths of who He is. Okay? So we see in a, a mirror dimly now, Paul, Paul would say. So He's incomprehensible. At the same time, He's knowable. So at the same time, He is knowable. Now, that is not a contradiction. What we must say, however, is that God cannot be fully known. Right? He has given us incomplete knowledge, or as Francis Schaeffer would say, he has revealed himself sufficiently but not exhaustively. That means God has not told you everything you want to know, but he's told you everything you need to know. You know, there's lots of places I'd like, could you give me some more details on that story? <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd love to hear, what was the full combo like with Jesus and Peter after Peter dove in the water and came up? I'd love to hear that. I'd love to hear the full combo with like Mary at the grave, like tell me about that. He doesn't tell us everything that we want to know. John in his gospel says, listen, y'all, if I was writing down everything, all the books, books, the world wouldn't be able to hold it all, Amen. right? So he's, he's incomprehensible because of how great he is, but he's also knowable. It is sufficient, but not exhaustive. It is not everything we want to know, but it is everything that we, we need to know. So Isaiah 55 gives us counsel. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. It's Isaiah 55, 6. Lots of verses there. But not only can he be known just in his existence, but he can also be known in how to be reconciled to him. John 17, 3 says, Now this is eternal life, that you may, that they, I'm sorry, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that you may know. There is enough knowledge given from heaven so that we might know Him and have eternal life. We know, not exhaustively, but sufficiently. So, one of the, the great hopes of the Christian is that for eternity, so first of all, we realize that now life is one big journey of growing in knowledge about God. So I've been a Christian for, what year is this, 17-ish years? Listen, y'all, my first couple sermons, I'm sure I spouted a lot of heresy. <laughs> like, praise God. You know, my first three years of preaching at the church I pastored in Texas, literally, I had Chris Dish delete every sermon that I preached. Like, they're gone, okay? Because I just didn't know. <laughs> and the Lord understands. He knows we are but flesh. Um, but as you walk with Him and you learn His Word, over time, you know Him more and more and more. And eternity will be diving into that. And there will be no bottom. So whoever has this idea that, like, we're going to be bored in heaven. Like, I sure hope they have football because, you know, it's going to be, what are we going to do? 
Ugh. Listen, I hope Peyton Manning's there, but I don't think he'll be throwing anything. I don't know. Maybe he will. Listen, he, sh he won't throw an interception, I guess. Do you throw interceptions in heaven? I don't know. But <laughs> we get to know him, the, the Lord, the one who, like, this is a snapshot, right? Everybody's life in here is intricately related. Something in your lives brought us all together in this room right now for like this, you know, 55 minutes that we're together. The Lord orchestrated all of that stuff in everybody's life at the same time throughout history. Like, boom, you know? I mean, like, that makes your, makes your mind just explode. And for eternity, to see the plan unfold from eternity past, the convo with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, like, Let's do this. Like, how does that happen? I don't know. And like everything that's come since, oh, the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His ways. Romans chapter 11 says. So, can God be known? Yes, He's incomprehensible, but He is, he is knowable. He's knowable. That's why we preach. That's why we opened a book. God's spoken and given His Word to us. Um, I will also say that in, in ex knowing God comes certainly th from creation, from conscience, from Christ, from experience in walking with Christ, in relationship with one another. All of those things we learn about God from. But I would just say that in our knowing about God, it always must come back to the Scriptures. And here's why. Because there, God interprets reality for us. If we didn't have the scriptures, we could just look out there and everybody could come up with a hypothesis. Yes, there's a God, but... And that's why you have all the interesting worldviews throughout history of all the different ideas about God. Because they're in darkness trying to figure it out. What you need is you need a word from above that says, this is who I am. So experience is really an important part of the Christian life. I look back on all sorts of experiences that I have had. But all those experiences, if they're not interpreted by the Scriptures, can be, can be misunderstood. And Satan is, is very crafty. He'll give you enough good in order to, to lead you astray. So my encouragement is to always come back to what does the Word say? Like what, is the, what does God's Word say about our experiences and our life and our testimonies and our interactions with one another and the things we've heard, felt, sought, imagined, heard, whatever. Everything needs to be guided and guarded through the Scriptures. Okay? All right. Y'all have questions? But that's why you have lunch. And y'all can talk to each other about them. All right. Um, just because we're going to make it through this. Doesn't mean I don't love you and doesn't mean your questions aren't important. What is God? This is not, we're not going to spend a lot of time here just because we don't have a lot of time. But we could talk about it for a minute. So what is God? When we speak of God's being, we're referring to his, his nature or His essence, and we're answering the question, what is God? When we speak of God's character or His perfections, we are answering the question, what is God like? For the weeks after this, Kelton and Merck and myself, Mercury and myself are going to be talking about what God is like. For the next just couple moments, we want to say, what is God? What is He? What's His being? 
Well, first of all, A, God, he's eternal. He's eternal. Now, um, let me just read some of these, these, these scriptures for us. So, people, so this is a question. Anybody who's ever had a kid or been around a kid or even given thought to anything, if you're like, okay, if all this came from God, then where did, where did God come from? I, who is, who's, who's thought that? Best of you who are asleep, you'll think about it later. Okay, where does God come from? Everybody asks that question, right? Well, the overwhelming testimony of Scripture is that He has always been. We operate in time. He, is, he creates time. He interacts in time. But he, he made time. He's not subject to its limitations. He has always been. So just listen to these testimonies from the Scripture about God. Genesis 21, 33, God is called the eternal God. In Exodus 3, 14, the Lord says, I am who I am. Who are you? I am. I'm the one who is, always have been. God is called the everlasting Father, Isaiah 9, 6. Job 36, 26, behold, God is great and we have known him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. Try and count how long God's been around. Psalm 29, 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Psalm 90, verse 2. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So, like, you ever try to do that thing when you're a kid to count backwards, like, to infinity? And, like, you get to, like, somewhere and your head just explodes? Like, I used to do that at night. Maybe I'm just weird. But anyway, so like, try it sometime. Your head will explode. But, like, try counting back to infinity. He's like, that doesn't even, like, that... You can't even begin to touch. Everlasting to everlasting. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. Revelation 1.8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says Jesus. Says the Lord God, Jesus. Who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. God is eternal. Now, one point of clarification here. God is the only being and only thing that is eternal. So I've... I've heard it said that people's souls are eternal. That's not true. People's souls are immortal, which means they will never die. Mormons believe that souls are eternal. That's why you, are, you get to become a god, is because you actually are a god, and you just need to unlock that, and then you get your own planet and your own universe. We, dis we deny that. God is the only one who's eternal. People are immortal. Okay? Just an important clarification. All right. Oh, man, I had all these great applications for God's eternality. Mm. Well, we've got eternity to think about it, don't we? Um, they're so good. Just one of the things. Bless you. The gift of eternal life. I think it takes on fresh meaning when you think about this doctrine of eternity. When we consider that God is calling us to join Him in His forever love. That the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have forever existed as God in a perfect relationship of love. And salvation, in one sense, it is the call for us to enter into that, to experience Him and what they have shared for all of eternity past, for all of eternity future. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, no matter where you've been or what you've done, would believe on Him, would not come into judgment, but have eternal 
life. The promise laid before us is that we get caught up into enjoy God forevermore. Like when you think about how grand that is, the promise runs, runs deep. B, God is spirit. John 4, 24. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Very interesting. God, God has none of the qualities that belong to matter and he is not conformed or he's not confined to a form or a body. That's what, God is spirit. Hold on for this for a second. God is spirit. So he's, he makes matter. He creates bodies, but he is not those things. He is, he is spirit, which one of the implications of salvation is this. We, we can't find or understand God by natural means because natural for us is everything has to do with matter, stuff we feel, taste, touch, the senses. So to know God who is spirit, there has to be a supernatural event to give you eyes to behold things that it's just like um, Elisha with his servant. They're about to go into battle, and he's like, uh, we're in a lot of trouble. He's like, no, we're not. He goes, yeah, we are. He goes, Lord, show him. Boom. And then the curtain pulls back, and there's all these angels that are about to like come and pounce on this army. And he's like, oh, okay. So it's like we need eyes to see that because we don't see like that naturally. So that's one of the implications of God being spirit is that just the grace of his, of the incarnation, that God says, you can't know me, so what I'm going to do is my son's going to come down and he's going to add humanity to himself. And he's going to show you so that when you see him, you see the father. He's not the father, but you see what the father's like. He's the image of the invisible God, the image of the invisible God. That's why God says, don't make any idols. Because you're going to try and make something? You're going to make me like what? A goat? You're going to make me like a son? You're going to make me like, I hold it in my hand. You can't, you can't use some physical representation to tell what I'm like. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to come down and show you what I'm like. It's the only way we know him. God is spirit. The other two are quite, quite simple. God is one. Explicit teaching in the Bible. There's only one true God. All others are imposters um, behind whom is a demon. That wouldn't fly on, you know, CNN, but it's true. Um, all other gods are imposters. So there is one true God who is personal. We're going to do a whole lesson on the Trinity, so we'll get back to these two things here in, in a couple weeks. But God is personal. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one true God, has eternally existed. And now everything in creation reflects that unity and diversity. So unity and diversity glorifies God, which is really what the heart of the gospel is. So when we go in here in just a couple minutes and we sing, there is unity of our voices from people from, last I counted, there's like at least near 20 different um, nationalities represented in our church. Pray for more diversity. We want it all the more diverse. But there are people from all sorts of background that that's why I think in the gospel where there's neither... um, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, where everybody's on level ground, there's this oneness that just glorifies God. So as we go out there, pursue unity for the glory of God and the pleasure of God because that reflects the very being of God.
I had to cut a bunch of stuff. If you want the notes, John knows how to give them to you. I hope that was encouraging somehow for you. Um, I'm going to pray for us. I'll stick around for a couple minutes uh, if you have questions. And then, uh, oh, we can't. They have a class in here, don't they? Yep, I'll just pray for us. Father, thank you that we cannot begin to touch the bottom of who you are, but that you are the God who exists and you are the God who, who is. So we praise you that you would make a way for us to know you. That though you are incomprehensible, you are knowable. We can know not only that you exist, but that you reward those who seek you. So Father, give us strengthened faith as we walk out there to sing, to hear your word, to pray. Might you move us to be people who love you all the more. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.